This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Today on CityCast Philly, it's the Friday News Roundup. We're talking about the mayoral ballot lineup, potholes in the city, and an AI poetry slam. It's Friday, March 17th. I'm Trinaynery, and here's what Philly's talking about. Joining me this week is Isaac Avalusia, reporter at Axios Philadelphia. Hey, Isaac. Hey, good morning, Trinay. Good morning, Sherry. Good to be on. Great. And Cherry Gregg, afternoon drive anchor for WHYY 90.9 FM and co-host of a new show called Studio 2. Hey, Cherry. Hello. Hi, Isaac. Trinay. Happy to be here. Good. Okay, before we get into this week of stories, I love to start these shows with an icebreaker. So next week on the show, we're talking all things spring. We've dubbed it our spring fling week because Monday is like the first day of spring. <laughs> so I want to ask you all, what's your favorite spring activity to do in the city? For me, I love walking. Like I'm a avid Same, walker. Yeah. And I, 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 during the pandemic, that's how I survived. I walked five, six miles a day. And oh, wow. um, <laughs> I was crazy. And so I'm looking forward to getting back out there. But I don't like the cold. I don't like the cold. So All right. So wh- where's your favorite spot to walk? Um, I love walking along the Schuylkill River, uh, the mm-hmm, Schuylkill River same. Trail near Boathouse Row. It's beautiful. I love it. And it doesn't get too hot when it's hot. So there you go. Yes. I love seeing the rowing teams out there. And usually you bump into someone that you might know. And so that's such a good feeling, too. You're like, hey, um, Isaac, what about for you? Every year it's, it's March Madness. And I'm like actually a spring baby. Oh, okay. I was supposed to be born on, on St. Patrick's Day. I, I came uh, eight days later, so it, co- <laughs> it coincides with my birthday, and I love March Madness. So, you know, I was seeing that Xfinity Live does a, a big event with all the televisions, and I'm thinking of trying to get down in the city. I'm, I'm in the burbs, but I'm going to try to get down to the city and, and, and take it in in that environment. Okay, Isaac, what's going down in City Hall? We finally figured out this mayoral primary ballot order. And from what I read, is it's not official yet, but this is pretty much the the order of how voters will see people's names on the ballot come May. Can you tell us about this story? Yeah. So, you know, uh, I thought it was kind of interesting just the way that they do uh, the order in Philadelphia. You know, I've only been at Axios six months mm-hmm. and I just found it fascinating how they pick out of a coffee can that has its own Facebook page. (laughs) (laughs) Right. um, It's not any of the front runners that are at the top of the ballot order. It's a guy named John Wood. And he ended up picking the number one top ballot. I just thought that was interesting. Uh, I think, uh, you know, not, not a real known candidate. I think he's a retired Lieutenant from Philadelphia police department. And he's billing himself as, a law and order candidate as a Democrat, which is a little bit interesting. And I have to say, I've 
watched a lot of the panel discussions and the forums, and I have not seen this John Wood anywhere. Am I missing? I'm like, who is this guy? There were some names, too. I was like, how? (laughs) But so last week on the show, we talked about, like, if you got those signatures and you were there at the deadline last week, you could have made it on. But ballot position matters, though, for but not necessarily for mayor, because there's only one you get to pick. And most people know. But it matters for, you know, city council at large, where people Mm -hmm. just gonna pick the five and they might know two and then they pick three that just at the top. It matters Mm -hmm. for judges and people don't realize it's a judicial election right now. And most people have no idea who these judges are and they just pick the top five or however many slots. And so the ballot position gives you a huge advantage. Yeah, for sure. And it's from a coffee can. Isaac, welcome to (laughs) Philly. Welcome. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Stuff doesn't make sense sometimes. And we have to mention that former city council member David O., He's got a good spot because he's the only Republican in the running. And for our listeners, May 1st is the last day to register to vote in the mayoral primary. Election day is Tuesday, May 16th. All right, Cherry, let's talk about what's going down at Temple University. The grad students, the six-week strike has ended. Tell us about that. Well, you know, I in and, and, and the interest of full disclosure, I am a Temple grad. Um, as here. you are today, uh, as Te- one of you, <laughs> and I, t- I teach a class at Temple University, and um, I was in teaching my class, and students were outside. These GAs were outside protesting, which made me interested in this. And they've been on strike. They were on strike for six weeks. They were only getting paid about twenty thousand dollars a year. They did have health care, but they wanted more money because. Over at Penn, they would make well over 30K. So they're like, mm. why are we getting paid so low? So they decided to go on strike and um, it worked. They put a lot of pressure on the administration, you know, talking about the issue of public safety. They were calling for a no confidence vote of the president of the university, who just started, by the way. Um, right. And so they they put all this pressure and uh, they had an agreement. They voted it down. And this time, this second agreement, they voted 98% overwhelmingly to approve the contract. So their pay, the minimum pay goes from $20,000. they will rise to $24,000 immediately. And by year four, the minimum pay for graduate teaching assistants and research assistants will be $27,000. They get a $500 bonus, $501 bonus. Plus, mm-hmm. they get 25% health care insurance subsidies for their dependents. And they get paid bereavement leave. And um, some time off for childbirth as well, things that they did not have. So this is a huge win for them. Good, good, And good. I want to mention that this is could be contagious because the Rutgers uh, part-time and full-time faculty, they just voted to authorize a strike. And they're in negotiations now with over in New Jersey with that administration. So people have seen the success that Temple had, and we could see this happening, I think, at other universities. Wow. Look, and I, I, I'm in favor. Anytime somebody's getting their paper, I'm in favor of that, right? And you have to really consider the the context. Right. Even even with this large pay bump in the in year four to get them to twenty seven thousand, we're still talking about. I think you're within two hundred percent of the federal poverty level. Right. And I understand just for added context that some of these graduate students that teach the core of these classes, they work nine months out of the year and they work part-time because they have to balance and juggle it with their education and all their other responsibilities. But I'm sorry, 
you know, that's a struggle. If you have a family, if you have dependents, you have people that depend on you to uh, help pay for their expenses, that's not a lot of money. So we're talking about going from 20,000 to 27,000 over four years. You're, you're, you're still not making a lot of money. Yeah. And, and I will say they do get some tuition remission. So they, the part of their pay is the fact that they don't have to pay uh, for all of their tuition. But you're right. I mean, if you got a family, it's hard to go back to school and to do this. And they do work. The mm-hmm. professors can't do it by themselves. They really need their GAs. And so they really caused a disruption and made people see, realize their value. And so they're bringing them on back. And I also read that the school is still kind of working out the details on when and how they'll return Mm -hmm. to their teaching and research jobs. But very, very interesting. All right. I also want to talk about this new public opinion poll that came out from the Lenfest Institute. And it really just kind of talked about some of the top issues that are on people's minds in the city. And like we said, you know, the top of the show, like we're going to be voting for a mayor in a couple of months. So these are some statistics that really stood out to me. 65% of respondents believe that the city is, quote, pretty seriously off the wrong track. Does that surprise y'all? No. No. People people seem very exasperated, especially since the pandemic. Um, we mm-hmm. heard when the mayor uh, a while back said that he couldn't wait till he was mayor. He said, hey, I can't wait till I'm yes. not mayor anymore. And yes. people were like, what? You going to leave us here? So I feel like there's been this growing exhaustion and the feeling that the city leadership has checked out. And I've seen that just at, when in talking to people. And so people are tired and they and they feel like they're the folks in charge are out of ideas. And I think that's why we see so many people running for office right now. Mm, that's a good point. Yeah, And to, and, and to Sherry's point, like I get the daily emails from the mayor's office. And I've noticed a trend in this last year or so, fewer and fewer appearances by the week, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that if your mayor is talking about a morale problem, that trickles down. You're going to see that in the voters. And and this this Lenfest Institute survey really speaks to that. I mean, you're talking about only 11% of the people that were sent surveys actually responded to that. That's a very narrow window. And the mm-hmm. the results from that 11% do not indoctrinate any sort of confidence. We're talking about gun violence is a major issue. Yes. And that's that's the biggest issue to the to the black community because it's impacting them the most. I think I think I forgot what the exact percentage was, but it was a very high number of people are reporting hearing gunshots in their neighborhood. 66%. Within the past year. Right. It's that's, only March, March 17th. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I and I will say the other thing that stood out to me was 64%, I think, of white residents said Philly was a great place to live, but less than half of black residents felt the same way. And mm-hmm. that just goes to show that, you know, mm-hmm. when you don't, when you're not able to make money and when you're dealing with public safety challenges, the city isn't a great place for you. Also, public school, education, yes, jobs, yes. affordable housing, homelessness, opioid use, city services and infrastructure were the other top issues on people's minds. And, you know, we've talked about it on the show um, 
so you know we're just a I think we're seven months old <laughs> but you know those episodes do very well because that's what's on people's minds that's what people want to hear about and and find solutions to so but but, the, but the, the other part of that is they don't know who to go to ask for help right that's real five percent of that's people real, Isaac. Yep. don't even know who their council person that in their district sounding to me <laughs> So speaking about, you know, crime and um, just like violence in, in the city, Cherry, one of your stories that you, you know, you feel like needs to get a little bit more attention is just the way that we as journalists cover these stories. So tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, recently there was a study that came out of Temple University. The Trace published it talking about how, you know, Philadelphia survivors of uh, gun violence feel like we're covering them. Also, we've seen we had a big story that came out within the past year talking about just the history of it bleeds it leaves action news type coverage of crime mm -hmm. that and was how Layla Jones story. yeah Layla mm -hmm. Jones story is part of mm -hmm. um, a more perfect union series and the Philadelphia Inquirer. Um, and I mean, I feel very strongly that we need to change the way we cover crime. First of all, most people call it the crime beat. We should call it the public safety beat. Mm. Instead of focusing in on crime, you know, we should focus in on how people can stay safe, how we how we even change the approach to coverage, because most crime victims have said that they feel like they're being exploited, that they are put in danger based on our coverage. Just, you know, we put information, we tell the people trying to get them exactly what hospital they're in. Sometimes we'll Ooh, tell okay. people's addresses in the news stories and put their life in danger. Um, they they felt like, you know, that this these stories weren't for them, but we're about them. And these are all the things that we keep hearing that, that they're being re-traumatized by our coverage. We're showing police tape in the background, blood on the ground, things like that, when we're not really giving people the tools to actually be safe. And so I, I truly believe that we need to shift the way we cover uh, gun violence, the way we cover violent crime, the way we cover the justice system and be more nuanced and in-depth and follow up to really give a more comprehensive view of what's going on and the solutions uh, that are available to help fix the the issue. And, you know, this the study is not saying that we shouldn't report on these types of stories. It's saying there needs to be some more sensitivity towards this subject. Yes. And I think some of these survivors have said that they felt demonized and that our coverage had no regard for their welfare. Mm -hmm. um, and what we've found out about gun violence specifically is that it's an epidemic. People who are more likely to shoot have likely been victims themselves. I've been covering civil rights. I've been covering criminal justice reform. I've covered gun violence for over a decade. And we're starting to provide resources at the end of our stories, right? It needs to have a more public health approach. I do think we need to cover gun violence. We need to let people know what's going on. But in addition to that, we have to do more to help people through this. Because what, what does it do to really just tell somebody that a shooting happened? I did, I did think it was interesting. I think Dr. Romer, they, they quoted Dr. Romer from Annenberg over there at UPenn, and, and he, he pointed out a, a little bit of a contradiction in, in, in Dr. Beard's uh, qualitative research study that pointed to the fact that a lot of these uh, victims of gun violence feel like they're neglected and exploited, yet 
they don't want to be in the news, right? So that kind of gives, that makes the news media's job a little bit stickier, stickier, a little bit harder, Mm -hmm. because in order to give that necessary context, we need people to go on the record. I have, I have very high standards at Axios for any anonymous sources. Like it's almost completely off limit limits. You know, if I'm trying to cover something like this, I, I'd be kind of in a rub if I want to get some of those people in a news story. But I, I think that by and large, I want to credit Philadelphia Media Corps. They've really migrated from this piecemeal type of kind of police blotter mentality to a more holistic approach. You see it in the Philadelphia Inquirer every day. The way they cover gun violence is the way we really should be covering gun violence. And same with WHYY and yes. the Trace. Um, yeah. Everyone, I feel like by and large, most uh, outlets in Philadelphia are doing the right thing. You you saw Mensa Dean actually migrate over from the Inquirer to Trace, which is a great outlet because it not only talks the talk, but it walks the walk. And they have the, the resource up the block, which uh, Fia Tucker is a part of. She's been on the show. Yeah. And I, that's what I, I was going to say. I... I love that we're kind of like checking ourselves mm-hmm. at this moment, right? And and I think it's just having more of these conversations, I feel like is super healthy and helpful to have. Um, because you know, you don't know if you're if if you're doing something wrong if no one pulls you to the side and say, Hey, correct that. And I wanna yeah. also point out that we've seen the harm that this bleeds at least type of coverage causes. Um, For a long time, you know, black and brown people were not featured in positive news stories. That Mm -hmm. has since changed, though. But and so when you only see people as, you know, mugshots, mugshot, 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 it changes the way people are viewed in the justice system. A jury is more likely to believe that a person is guilty of a crime. Black people are multiple times more likely to be wrongfully convicted. And so all of these things have a trickle down effect. So I even challenge people to think about when and why they use mugshots. I, I challenge folks to when and how we um, we show like very, um, you know, gruesome photographs and images um, and make sure we're not re-traumatizing communities or convicting people before they had a chance um, to be actually convicted by a jury. So that those are all the things that I think about when I look at crime coverage. And, and you know, it's, it's a very delicate balance, like Isaac said. It puts us in a tough spot, but it should because what, what we do can influence so many policies and so many things. Yeah, and me on a personal level, I've had to reorient myself a lot because I came from a tabloid, right? And as many tabloids, their bread and butter is crime coverage. So I have to stand up here and say, I've been guilty of doing this myself, right? Um, and, and I don't feel great about it, but uh, you can always change for the better a, a, as a media member. And we should be held to the highest ethical standards because we have one of the greatest jobs and the greatest responsibilities in America. We set the agenda for what's important. Mm-hmm. We educate the public. We tell them what's important. And we should be held to those high standards. Well said, Isaac and Cherry. Well said. (laughs) 
All right, I, I want to get this other story in. Bucks County officials have filed a lawsuit in, in the state of California against social media companies. Isaac, what's going on here? I just thought this story was very, very interesting. You're talking about Bucks County officials coming together, and they had a press conference this week to announce that they were filing a federal lawsuit in California court. They sought assistance from a, a law firm in San Francisco to file a lawsuit against some of the top social media companies in the country, talking about their complicit with creating a mental health crisis among Bucks County teenagers. I just thought that was a really compelling story. I mean, putting the legal issues aside, I just, I don't know how they're going to prove it. What do, what do you guys think about this? I mean, right. I mean, they're, they're saying that these platforms have worsened children's anxiety, depression because of these like images that they see, those like TikTok challenges and all types of different things. And I, again, I think this is a great conversation to have. There are limits on these platforms where, you know, you, know, you need to be 13 years old. But I don't know if schools are teaching children like media literacy and how to decipher like what's real, what's not. If they have resources at the schools or if parents are having those conversations with their with their children about, you know, proper etiquette. So this is a huge step. I've never seen this before. Um, and I think this is a huge step. I think it's going to be a trend. I really do. And I think that even if they don't win, what they will do is force these companies to change. I mean, you think about all the changes that TikTok is making because of the threat of a ban. Mm -hmm. So I'll, I'll bet that there's more that these companies can do. And if this lawsuit forces their hand for fear of having to pay, even if these cities and counties don't end up winning, we could see a positive change from it. Okay. Something that pisses me off in Philly. Philly potholes. It's tearing up my car. I can't keep paying for a new tire. I keep going on uh, 52nd Street. I'm like, yeah, it's me again. I need a new tire. Isaac, this is a story that you reported on this week. What really stood out to me is that the average turnaround for repairing potholes is 52 days, according to an Axios analysis of 311 data from the last four years. Yeah, and I, I just want to be a little bit more fair, just in the in the air, uh, name of transparency. Mm -hmm. the, that fifty two day figure covers a range of issues because not all that data in the three one one database is strictly potholes. Okay, it encompasses a lot of other issues like sinkholes, trenches, ditches, all these different things that people collectively refer to and think of as potholes. potholes. Okay, and that okay, was, that was the point that Chief Highway engineer Steve Lorenz was trying to make. He was saying that he believes he that by his estimate about 25 to 50 percent of these complaints that come in through the 311 he believes are something a little bit greater than just your average run-of-the-mill pothole. That said, two <laughs> days is a lot. <laughs> right. right. And then they have the cone in like several cones sometimes. It's a maze. Go drive down Walnut Street. <laughs> it's like you're driving a maze. And I will say right. a quick pothole story. I was driving a station car at my old job and during and I ended up backing up into this crater, broke the car oh, and no. had to hike home. Like literally like I could not get the, the car was like teetering and I, oh, it was so deep. 
and it was dark, so I didn't see it. And I literally broke the car. I don't know why they gave me a new car after that because oh that gosh. station car disappeared. That's how bad the damage was <laughs> to that oh vehicle. Gosh. So this is this is real money that people have to pay yeah. and real damage um, to their vehicles. And so, mm-hmm. and this is the city's fault. This is not something that you can you can do on your own. The city needs to do their job. Yeah, and and the, and the city's responsible for for about 2,000 of about 2,500 miles of roadway in, in the city. So, you know, it's a, it's a big task. But when you think about it, among all the other issues, even the issues that we talked about today, crime, homelessness, opioids, potholes is a relatively easy problem to fix. Get some tar, get some gravel, take your pothole killer out and go down the block, fill in all the holes, right? Uh, it's one of the easier issues that's, not as systemic in scope for an elected official to fix. And it goes a long way with the constituency. I'll say that. Mm-hmm. All right. Before we head out, we got to talk about some good news real quick. Uh, the good news story that I thought was great is that I saw in Philly Voice that Tiger Woods charity is planning to open an education center at the historic city owned Cobbs Creek golf course and they're going through a multi-million dollar renovation right now um, which is set to be done by next year but this place is going to have stem education college prep and career readiness programs for kids and teens so i think that's great i love it um isaac let's talk about this ai poetry slam what (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh marshall james cavanaugh he's been a fixture in Philadelphia for a long time. He's actually, uh, he's a poet for hire, as he calls himself on on Instagram and on social media. And he'll post up at different parts of the city. And I happened to walk by, my girlfriend and I were in the city a couple weeks ago, and we were in Rittenhouse Square walking by, and I saw him posted up with his little typewriter and his collapsible desk and talked to him. And he was actually doing another poem for a UPenn student. Mm-hmm. And uh this student had asked him, he'd given this really unique challenge that Marshall had never done in his life. He basically gave him a prompt, write a poem about chat GPT, right? The AI bot that is popularized that everyone's ex- uh, exploding with excitement about. And he gave him like a 15 minute window. He circled the block and had chat and Marshall come up with their own poem in a very meta way about the platform. And so then he came back about 15, 20 minutes later and see what they came up with. And we published a story kind of outlining that and uh, showing side by side excerpts of of what they came up with. And and we wanted to hear from Philadelphians. Hey, which one did you think was better? And could you identify which one was written by the human versus the bot? And we'll have a link in our show notes so you can check out those poems. And next month is Poetry Month. So I'm so excited. And Cherry, let's talk about this story that you found about a game-changing loan fund that will help people get to some affordable housing. Yes, um, the Philadelphia Accelerator Fund. It's a public-private partnership. And their goal is to increase affordable housing by connecting minority developers with capital, right? Because a big problem Mm. when you're developing new properties is getting access to money. And so they've been able to put together real money to help people get into this business. And their first project is a $2.7 million rehab of a apartment building 
in West Philadelphia, Dawood Bay. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he's an anti-violence activist. He also yes. is a returning citizen, and he is the leader of this project. He was able to raise about $2.6 million, real money, to purchase this property. He's done other projects as well, so he is experienced. But this Philadelphia Accelerator Fund was instrumental. They um, gave him majority of the money, like about half of the money. He also put in $100,000 of his own money. And so this is a really big deal because this is um, he's going to now serve as a role model to a lot of other people. This fund is going to give people who don't typically have access to capital access to capital, and they're going to use that money to build more affordable housing, which is currently in crisis in the city of Philadelphia. To me, it's a heartwarming story because you see people doing real things, being able to make those relationships with banks and to change their community, building by building, property by property, and while helping folks find housing that is safe, affordable. And I mean, yeah, it's just, I just love this story. I love it too. That's Cherry Gregg, Afternoon Drive anchor for WHYY 90.9 FM and the co-host of a new show called Studio 2. Thank you so much for bringing all these stories and for being on CityCast Philly. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And Isaac Avalusia, reporter at Axios Philadelphia. Thank you also for bringing your stories for this conversation and for being on CityCast Philly. It was a pleasure. Let's do it again. It's time for the tip of the day, where we share a life hack for living in Philly. Parking in the city can definitely get tricky. Spot Angels has a Philly parking guide you should check out. You may be able to get free parking on Sundays on some Philly streets. You can park in loading zones for free for up to 20 minutes. If you park in a metered spot overnight in some neighborhoods, that's free too. You just have to move your car in the morning. There's also free parking on major holidays like upcoming Easter and Memorial Day. But always, always, always read the signs carefully. If you have a tip of the day, we'd love to hear from you too. Call or text us at 215-259-8170. That's all for today here on CityCast Philly. Our lead producer is Mallory Falk. Our producer is Abby Fritz with help from Lizzie Goldsmith. Our Hey Philly newsletter editor is Brittany Valentine. And our host is me, Ternana Reed. Music is by Philly's own Interminable, with additional music from All the Kimonos and James Weldon. If you enjoyed this week of episodes, please tell a friend, rate the show, leave us a review, and subscribe to the morning newsletter. It's called Hey Philly. We'll be back Monday morning with more news from around the city. Have a great weekend and be safe. Bye. Bye.